On this episode of ADE Spotlight Podcast, I had the opportunity to speak with somebody that I've known for a while and somebody whose work I greatly admire. Alan Barger is a research analyst for Prevention Research Institute out of Kentucky, and I asked him to join us today to talk about marijuana, both medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. It's my hope that Alan will be able to help us shed some light on the pros and cons of these issues, uh, shed some light on what the current research tells us about medical marijuana, and maybe talk about some of the misconceptions that uh, exist in the general public and also some of the barriers to researching effective uses of marijuana in the medical field. Uh, Alan has a, a wealth of information I've enjoyed listening to him over the years, and I believe that uh, you'll enjoy this conversation as well. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Uh, I think... Likewise, Jim. I'm hoping what we can do today is uh, just get an unbiased view of both uh, medical marijuana and recreational marijuana and uh, provide the listeners here with some clarity in terms of what we're talking about when we talk about the, uh, the, the differences between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana and some of these larger uh, questions. But first, why don't, uh, if you could, just go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about yourself, about your interest in this topic and, and your experience as you've uh, uh, researched and, and, and done uh, uh, the number of presentations that you've done. Okay, sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for this opportunity. I think it's great. Um, so um, I work for uh, Prevention Research Institute, and we do um, uh, programs for people who are harmfully involved with alcohol and drugs. Um, and there are some people that marijuana is that drug. Um, so a number of years ago, actually, I was asked uh, by the administration uh, at PRI to really dig into the marijuana literature. So my title at PRI is that I'm a research analyst. And I want to be clear about what that means, which is that I am tasked with reading across the research literature across multiple fields. And the reason I think that's important to mention up front is because anytime you're looking at an issue, um, fields are sort of siloed. So psychologists look at psychological stuff, sociologists look at sociological stuff, you know, doctors and biologists look at the biology. And we read across all of that literature and then try and pull the pieces together to get a fuller picture of what's, you know, what's going on with, with issues. And uh, marijuana um, is, is one of those issues that cuts across all of those fields. There's recreational use, there's problematic use, and, um, and then there's medical use. And uh, so I think just uh, sort of pulling all those pieces apart is important, but being able to read broadly across the different fields also contributes to having a fuller picture. It's like putting a puzzle together until the pieces sort of give you a larger picture than any one piece will do. 
Uh, so, and, and I got, I got started in this, uh, back in the mid nineties, uh, started reading in the marijuana research literature. Uh, this was shortly after the, uh, this was shortly after the, uh, discovery of the human, uh, cannabinoid system. And so there was just an explosion of research, uh, really looking at how does marijuana and its various components act in our bodies now that we know that we have this, uh, you know, natural cannabinoid system in our own bodies. And so uh, it was really a, a fortunate time to really start reading in this and, and catching up with things. And then, um, you know, in our culture, the issue of marijuana has now become, of course, a huge issue. And uh, so we uh, it's also a good time to be looking at um, the the range of issues around marijuana from medical to recreational and so forth. So that's sort of how I got into this. Um, and it's, uh, I have to say, it's been a fascinating ride so far. <laughs> I, um, I like the visual image I had when you talked about silos. Um, I want, I want to come back to that because that's one of the key reasons I wanted to talk to you. But, but before we do that, um, just talk a little bit more about uh, Prevention Research Institute. I, you know, just uh, for the listeners here, um, we sure. at ADE, we have worked with uh, Prevention Research Institute for uh, quite a number of years. I think very highly of the folks in your organization, as you know. Um, we did a, a prior uh, conversation, a podcast with... Uh, Ray, uh, a number of months ago, which was fascinating, and he talked about uh, how PRI, Prime, uh, Prevention Research Institute, came to be and all of that, and we had a very good conversation, but maybe just tell the folks just a little bit about um, what your organization does. Sure. So uh, we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're located in, uh, headquartered in Lexington, Kentucky. We develop uh, two programs the Prime for Life program, which is designed for uh, uh, professionals to use working with people who've had or having alcohol or drug problems but may or may not need treatment, for instance, with impaired driving offenders. Um, you know, people who go out and, and get arrested uh, driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs, not all of them are chemically dependent. Not all of them are going to need treatment, but they obviously have some issues, and it's an opportunity to help to sit down with them and really look at where what they're doing in their lives and where they're going and whether or not that's where they want to be going. So it's a it's a gentle sort of non-judgmental approach of you know let's let's look at things and then in the end you decide what you want to do. So that's Prime for Life. Then we also developed the Prime Solutions program. Um, Prime Solutions is designed uh, for people, for use by professionals in uh, treatment programs. And uh, that one uh, is, uh, builds upon what we do in Prime for Life, but they are each standalone programs. But Prime Solutions allows counselors to sort of implement evidence-based practices like cognitive behavioral therapy and, and motivational interviewing approaches and so forth uh, just by implementing the program the way it's designed. So Prime for Life is actually an evidence-based program. It's listed in SAMHSA's 
National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices. And Prime Solutions doesn't have that level of research yet, but to call it evidence-based because it requires a history of research on it, and Prime Solutions is relatively new. Uh, but uh, it is an evidence-derived program, which means it's built upon and, and built using evidence-based practices. So uh, what we do is we develop those programs and then we train other professionals uh, to implement them because evidence-based programs need an evidence-based implementation. They have to be done with fidelity. So our work is to just try and build really good tools for people who are in the prevention, intervention, or treatment fields to use and then train them in the effective use of them. And in doing that, we've really, we've really tried to look not only at the research that uh, would give us accurate information, but also the, the, the psychological research uh, on how people change and what assists people in making behavior change that will be beneficial to them and, and to their families and communities and so forth. So um, that's, that's basically our work is to develop those tools and train other professionals in using them. And my job at PRI then is to, as I said, read broadly across several uh, different subjects of research uh, the marijuana I've mentioned, other drugs as well, the neurobiology of addiction and those types of things to keep up with what's happening in the research in those areas and then use that, uh, infuse that research-based information into our programs and then also um, work with professionals to make sure that they're up to speed on the, uh, the sort of the latest that, that we know from the research literature, uh, both in you know what we're work, what we're telling clients, and also in how we're interacting with clients. So a lot of there's uh, we we've always sort of said tongue in cheek at Prevention Research Institute that research is our middle name, but it really is very important to what we do. Well, you are just one of a uh, great team of people at at PRI. Uh, as you know, I, I think the world of the, of the of the folks there and the work that they do. Uh, I do have a great team. There's no question about it that I that I co-work with there, and um, it's a, it's really uh, it's really a privilege. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to spend my uh, professional life doing. So I appreciate that. Let's uh, let's circle back though to the reason we're talking today, and that is uh, we want we want to get a little deeper into marijuana. What you you mentioned uh, in in your introduction about. Uh, the change in conversation since, say, the 1990s. How would you summarize that change? Hmm. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, I would say there's more information and more confusion. Um, <laughs> because nothing, nothing about marijuana is simple. Um, I think it's one of the most complex issues. You know, we're, we're, we're fairly clear on things around cocaine and heroin and, and even alcohol. But marijuana is a complex um, collection. The marijuana plant is actually a complex collection of different compounds that have different effects, both recreationally and medically. 
And so I think that contributes to a huge amount of, uh, of confusion when we talk about marijuana, and particularly when we're talking about medical marijuana. So the, the, um, I think the heat has turned down just a little, although I could be wrong about that. Uh, and then by heat, I mean sort of the emotional uh, uh, clamor um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of talking past, people talking past one another uh, because um, I think there's not good information out there, especially, again, when we're talking about medical marijuana. Uh, and so there tend, there, there tend to be sub, um, sort of positions that people stake out, but sometimes those positions are not really well-informed by you know, the best data, at least that have at this point in time. And that's, and by the way, that's going to be changing constantly. My guess is for the next, you know, 20 to 40 years, uh, there's just going to continue to be uh, research digging into the marijuana issue. I mean, that's, I think that's how complex it is. Uh, recently, I went to a town hall meeting in a small village in my home state of Michigan where one of the village council members was talking about some pending legislation here in Michigan that would allow communities to authorize uh, licenses for folks to uh, to grow or distribute or transport or test uh, uh, medical marijuana. And uh, it was an open town hall and this gentleman invited people in to make comments. And one of the things that, that struck me, Alan, although this, I have to say that I think the crowd was very favorable to him. I think most of the folks who came to the town hall knew where this gentleman stood and, and were sort of supporting his efforts. But there were some people who were who had uh, coming from an opposite uh, viewpoint. But it, it struck me then that... The reactions were really twofold, and and I think both of them missed the point. There was a group of people there who supported this for this village because uh, of financial reasons. They themselves uh, stood to gain financially by this, or uh, they would make the argument that the village would stand to gain financially by granting these licenses and some of the revenue that would come to the uh, village because of that. And then on the other side... We had folks that were against it, but again, I think for the wrong reasons. I think there was a lot of misconception about what these licenses would allow people to do, and and uh, from an even broader view, just some misconceptions about what medical marijuana really is. And so, when you talked in your introduction about solos or silos, I'm sorry, or you talk about people staking their position, I, I saw that very clearly, and it it seemed to me that that both of those things sort of missed the point. There was no uh, real discussion about uh, what medical marijuana is, what it isn't, which is, I think, equally mm-hmm. as important. And, uh, I agree. And, and you know, how, how it may benefit people. And, I've, you know, I've seen that sort of thing uh, quite a bit over the, over the last several years. Um, mm-hmm. it, people object to these things uh, based on stereotype 
or they uh, object to it based on uh, they take a moral stand against it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not an objection based in fact. And I, now I, I realize that may be a generalization or an oversimplification, but I think uh, in some cases that's true. And uh, and I'm wondering if you see that too in your conversations, either professionally or personally. Um, well, I do, yes. Uh, and this is one of the things I, I mentioned uh, a moment ago when I was talking about people sort of talking past each other. So I don't... Um, so I have a I have a couple of thoughts here. Um, one is um, when we talk about medical marijuana, um, the first thing I want to say is in terms of recreational use of marijuana, and and uh, um, you know there's not a depending on well there's some variables here, but there's not a whole lot of difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, um, except for a few strains of marijuana, and I'll, I'll get into that in a, in a little bit. But, um, uh, but so for recreational marijuana use, I think one of, the, uh, one of the concerns that many of us who have, particularly who come from the uh, the alcohol and drug prevention and treatment side of the field. I think one of the concerns we have is that uh, there's a message out there that marijuana is basically harmless, and that simply isn't true. Um, not not when we're talking about recreational use. Uh, the very fact that med- that marijuana may have some medical use suggests that it has the power to alter the body and alter the mind, alter the brain, and all of those carry with them certain risks. So recreational use in particular can carry some risks with it, not the least of which is uh, a dependent syndrome uh, addiction. And uh, I will tell you that there is no debate left, in at least in the research community, on whether or not marijuana can produce dependence. It absolutely can, and we're not talking just about a psychological dependence. We're talking about, um, you know, a type of dependence where uh, people's lives are really disrupted by its use. Relationships are ruined, jobs are lost. Um, you know, those types of things can happen, and that isn't that isn't just because of legal penalties. That is because they they stop performing their roles because of their marijuana use. And so there's always a concern um, about that type of thing. And and that doesn't mean that there may not be some medical usefulness for uh, for marijuana. Uh, But it means that we should approach it the way we do other potentially addictive substances when we're going to use them as medicines. That is, we uh, we should approach them cautiously they should be well researched. They should be monitored in their use, and so on and so forth. Um, so the I think the other issue that uh, I, I sort of want to raise here is a language issue. I I kind of wish we could get away from the term medical marijuana because I think it's too imprecise. I think it creates the confusion that we want to clear up. 
So in the marijuana plant, there are a variety of different compounds. The two of them that are best studied at this point are THC, Delta-9 THC, um, which is uh, a substance that has uh, a few medical benefits, uh, but also is a substance that gets you high and uh, has the, appears to have the addictive potential. Um, the other best studied compound is one called cannabidiol, which I'm just going to call CBD. And CBD is not psychoactive, it won't get you high, and it appears to have uh, a number of potential medical uses. Um, that is, uh, among, among other things that, uh, that it can do, uh, it seems to um, uh, it, it's, it's anti, it, it has sedative properties, uh, sedative hypnotic properties, which means it can help with sleep. It has uh, anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, it has anti-psychotic properties. So it, it may be helpful for um, uh, psychosis uh, and, and so forth. Uh, it may it may even have some anti-tumoral properties, uh, although um, I want to say right up front here, there is no research showing that smoking marijuana or even taking cannabidiol per se will treat cancer. Um, it may have some anti-tumoral properties, but um, that's that's with a cell in a petri dish. We haven't we haven't seen any human you know, evidence uh, yet that it cures cancer. Um, so uh, when we're talking about marijuana, um, I think people have in mind, they, I think they're mostly thinking about THC. And uh, the marijuana plant can have um, either higher or lower levels of THC. One of the problems that we have with the recreational marijuana use uh, is that what is desirable in the user is a higher THC content, a higher potency. And because of that, marijuana growers who are growing for that recreational market have tended to push up the THC content. And in doing that, they have pushed down the CBD or cannabidiol content in those plants. And uh, it may be that uh, as we push up the THC content, uh, some of the problems that that can cause, uh, not only the dependence syndrome, but potentially psychosis uh, and those types of things. Remember that there was a time when marijuana was classified as a hallucinogen because people could have uh, psychotic effects. Uh, while they were under the influence. And there is a, a decent body of evidence suggesting that THC may increase risk for psychosis. And uh, the, uh, so if we, we push down the CBD level and push up the THC level in plants, we may, we may be increasing not only the potency for getting high, but the potency for other health problems and other risks that are associated with it. Um, so what I really wish we could start doing when we talk about quote-unquote medical marijuana is really talking about the compounds 
that, that are in marijuana that might have medical use. And, and I, think, I think that is a part of the, a part of the issue. Uh, it, like at your community meeting, you've got people there who are thinking about the THC and uh, they are concerned about potential risks from that. And then you've got the other people there who view it as a as a decent medicine, and why shouldn't our community benefit from the sales of, of a decent medicine? Um, and and so in this this is how they end up sort of talking past each other, because on the one hand there really are risks, especially with THC, and on the other hand there are some medical uses both with THC, with cannabidiol, and then probably with some other compounds that you will find in marijuana. So the marijuana plant has over a uh, hundred different cannabinoid substances. Very few of them have had any clinical investigation. And I think going forward, we're going to see more and more of that type of investigation happening. So those are sort of the, the two issues that I felt it was important to say. There's the, the recreational use and even with medical use, there is some risk that is involved there. And on the other hand, we should really be talking about the particular compounds and the risks of particular compounds. So cannabidiol doesn't appear to be addictive. Um, there, it, it seems to have very few side effects uh, from other than what people want from it. Uh, and uh, in that sense, it may be a, a potentially useful medical substance, uh, particularly much more than THC. Uh, so, uh, in your in your community meetings, I think you have people who are uh, talking about medical marijuana, uh, and and that's been very confused with recreational use of marijuana uh, because we've not really pulled out and talked about the compounds that we're you know that we're talking about using and the risks and benefits of those compounds. I have. I, I want to come back to that. I have some questions about uh, sure. the issues you've raised, but I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. Uh, I want to pull that out and, and maybe have you restate that. You you said that there's there is no longer an argument to be made that uh, marijuana is not addictive, or or may not lead to dependence. Is that, is that a fair statement? Uh, what I said that was that in the research community, there's no longer a debate about that. It's, it's, an accepted, uh, it's accepted that marijuana, and THC in particular, can produce a dependent syndrome. Um, that was, uh, I, I wanted you to highlight that because of arguments I have heard from just people as I as I talk about this, as I make my way, either professionally or personally, I hear that marijuana is not addictive. I hear that frequently, so I wanted you to reiterate that point. Yes. Well, and 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 a part of that debate, Jim, is around uh, your definition of addiction. So let me let me talk about that for just a moment, if I may. Um, so our, we have tended in this country, and I think for, for a large part of the public, 
um, this this continues to be the the issue. Um, we have equated withdrawal with addiction, and uh, marijuana has there is a withdrawal syndrome. And as a matter of fact, in the DSM five, they finally clinically define a withdrawal syndrome, which I was gratified to see. Um, uh, but uh, cannabis withdrawal syndrome, I should say, uh, and uh, but it's a it's a relatively mild withdrawal, and as a matter of fact, it may even be attributed to you know other issues. I'm not sleeping well, or you know I'm irritable, or um, that type of thing. Um, but withdrawal is not the actual hallmark of addiction. The hallmark of addiction is when the use of a substance becomes so compulsive that I start neglecting my other life roles and duties, um, and I start prioritizing its use. Its use becomes compulsive for me. I have to have this now. I can't stop myself from using this. Uh, I use more than I intend to use. Uh, I, w I wish. I wish I could just smoke every now and again, but once I start smoking, I find myself doing it, you know, much more than I want to be doing it. Um, and so that type of, uh, that's, that's more the hallmark of addiction when the level, when its use becomes such a compulsion that it begins to interfere with people's lives. And we absolutely see that happening. If you think about the DSM criteria for dependence uh, or, or a cannabis use disorder, uh, those criteria are largely behavioral. I'm using it in, in times or places that make it hazardous. I'm uh, neglecting uh, roles in my life. I am uh, using despite knowledge of health problems that I may have. This may be making worse and so on. So they are, most of this, the uh, diagnostic criteria are behavioral criteria that center around sort of an uncontrolled use. Uh, and uh, you know, putting into place efforts to try and stop and failing at those efforts and so forth, those are indicators of addiction. Um, the uh, so, but when the when the public thinks about this, they they tend to think of withdrawal, and then they think about uh, well, marijuana may or may not cause withdrawal, and if it does, it's really mild. And so if, even if it's addictive, and I've, I've heard this actually said, I've seen it on websites and things, even if it is addictive, the addiction is so mild, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but that's not, that's not what our field thinks of as addiction now. Um, it used to be, but we've, we have a different definition of addiction. So in that regard, in the regard that there are people whose use gets out of control, that absolutely is a risk and it does happen to people and there is research indicating that the quantity and frequency of use can predict later dependence later a later use disorder if you will uh, and uh, so so when we talk about the addictive potential we don't mean just withdrawal we mean really this is interfering with people's lives in a way that that uh, they may not even uh, I'm glad you, you clarified that. I think those were important points. Let me let me now come back to uh, 
this idea of the medical cannabis, you mentioned um, the need to sort of look at this from the perspective of THC as well as the CBDs. When you talked about THC, you you uh, mentioned that there may be some medical benefits from THC. Did I, did I hear that correctly? And if so, can you, you can you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. Um, so uh, THC has certain uh, sort of well-recognized uh, potentially medical benefits. Um, it is anti-nausea. Uh, so, you know, if a person is, uh, you know, suffering from nausea, a lot of marijuana users will tell you that if they um, smoke or vape uh, some marijuana and get the THC, that they feel better, and that isn't just that isn't just the high. It actually helps the nausea to go away, and uh, that's uh, I think that's probably in fact been the chief sort of medical argument that's often made uh, is that it is it is it appears to be really useful for people who are undergoing uh, cancer therapies, either chemotherapy or radiation therapy, following their treatments, they're nauseous and, and, you know, possibly throwing up. And THC seems to be able to offset that. So that's one. Another is an appetite stimulant. Uh, And uh, this was particularly before we had good treatment for HIV AIDS. Uh, the appetite stimulant for people who had AIDS wasting syndrome and so forth. They you know that this could, I mean, the munchies actually are a real thing, and uh, it's, it does stimulate the appetite. And then the other is analgesic. Um, that is, it really helps with pain. So those are probably the three most potent things that THC itself can, um, can help with. Um, there is also uh, uh, there is some clinical evidence that THC, in combination with cannabidiol, uh, CBD, may reduce uh, painful uh, spasms in people who have multiple sclerosis. And as a matter of fact, there is actually a pharmaceutical preparation of THC and CBD called Sativex that has been approved for that use uh, in other countries, and I believe is in, the last I heard was in phase three trials here in the U.S. Uh, but that's for a very specific condition, which is multiple sclerosis, and it's had sort of mixed reviews with some other, um, some other sort of, uh, well, some other chronic health conditions. But those three, uh, anti-nausea, appetite stimulant, analgesic, uh, which would include the painful spasms, helping to relieve all, all of those types of things. Can you help us understand the various delivery methods for either THC or CBDs? Yeah. Um, so, first of all, all of the medical uh, authorities who've explored this that said, look, inhaling smoke from burnt plant matter is not is not a good is not a good medical route of administration. So smoking a joint is is not a um, it's not a medically desirable route of administration. 
Um, one of the reasons there, there is a real interest in some of the vaping, uh, the, the vape pens and the vaporizers and those types of things, is that you can heat the plant material to a point where it releases uh, some of those uh, cannabinoid substances in a vapor that can be inhaled, but you don't get the problematic smoke uh, that you get from burning the plant. Uh, so uh, vaping is another route of administration. Um, and uh, those, are, those, uh, those are probably the two chief ones. They are also looking at, uh, well, they're, they're also now the, the oils. So uh, uh, cannabidiol oil uh, that can be put in drops under the tongue and just mostly absorbed you know through the the mucous membranes of the mouth um, and that bypasses it having to go into the stomach where some of it is going to be broken down and metabolized so by absorbing it in the mouth through a, through drops or through an inhaler spray where it goes into the lungs and out into the into the bloodstream all of those are things that are being investigated. One of the problems with the inhalers, although there is there is work that is going on, is um, all of the cannabinoid substances are fat-loving. They want to be in fats or oils, and you obviously don't want to be inhaling oils <laughs> into your lungs. Um, and so the you know the drops, uh, the oil drops under the tongue. Um, they're looking for ways to infuse the cannabinoids into something other than oily substances for inhalation purposes. And there's research, I think, going on on that route of administration. Uh, but those are probably the main routes of administration. Let me say a word about the, about the vaping in particular. So for those of us who work, uh, again, in the field related to, you know, dependence and and uh, addiction and the public health concerns. One of the one of the issues with vaping is that you can get a much more powerful dose. So the butane hash oil um, has very high levels of THC in it. Um, you uh, you vaporize that, and you can get an enormous amount of THC in essentially in a single breath, and much more than you would get from smoking a joint, and that has two potential problems to it. Uh, one is that the person can get more impaired than perhaps they intended to get, uh, and the other is that anytime you increase the potency of a dose of a substance that has an addictive potential, you probably move the needle toward addiction more rapidly with those higher potent doses being taken over and over again. Uh, so the uh, vaping, uh, vaporizing certainly has its benefits in terms of bypassing the smoke, but it may increase the risk, uh, particularly for impairment and, uh, and addiction. What can you tell us about uh, edibles? Hmm. I'm sorry, I did not think of edibles. I totally missed that. Um, so on the edibles, um, so the edibles uh, often have uh, you know, a significant amount of THC in them. 
uh, the when they go into the stomach, uh, they get uh, they get broken down and you know go out into the the bloodstream and they do a first pass metabolism through the liver. And the first thing that the liver does is that it turns the THC into its first metabolite, which is hydroxy THC. There's a long chemical name for it, but we'll just call it hydroxy THC. Uh, and Hydroxy THC is at least as potent in terms of the euphoric high. It's at least as potent as, as THC itself. Uh, so it will cause uh, an, an equal or even greater amount of impairment. But uh, uh, in terms of its uh, in terms of its medical use. Uh, the, the onset of the effects is delayed. So, for, for example, we've known about the nausea issue, the anti-nausea properties of THC for a long time, and we've had a chemical preparation of THC, dronabinol, uh, or the brand name Marinol. Um, and, but people who are dealing with nausea don't really want to wait anywhere from a half an hour to two hours for an effect for taking an oral preparation of THC when they can get relief in a matter of minutes from uh, inhaling THC. So um, the so so with the edibles, uh, once again, there's sort of the uh, uh, there. They're easier to take. You know, some people don't want to smoke or, you know, inhale anything. Um, they're easier to take. We all know how to eat. Uh, and uh, the onset of the effects is longer. This increases the risk that a person will overdose. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the first, um, one of the first fatalities that they had in the state of Colorado was, uh, was with an edible where an uh, a young college student who had no experience with marijuana came to Colorado on a break. He got a marijuana cookie, is my understanding. The dose was one-sixth of that cookie, which he took. He waited a half an hour. He felt no effects. So he ate the rest of the cookie. And then um, not long after that, he had a psychotic break. Uh, and became more and more erratic until finally he leaped off the balcony of uh, the hotel room that he was staying in and died. So there's this uh, there's this potential for overdose with the with the edible uh, with with the edible route unless people know that they're just going to have to wait on the effect, and then the effect is harder to adjust because whatever you put in. There it is. So maybe it's not what you want as much, or maybe it's too much. This uh, this may be an unfair question, but okay. I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> the, you know, we've talked about uh, the research community that you're a part of. We've talked about some of the uh, public uh, misconception or lack of understanding of these things. What is the view generally of the medical community? Uh, do, are, are you seeing a shift in uh, the view of medical providers in terms of at least looking at uh, cannabis as a medical option 
Is there still some right. resistance to that idea? When, I, I realize it's an unfair question because we, we can't lump everybody in the medical community into one, one answer. Right. But I, I thought I'd, it, well, let, let, maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there and what your experience is. Yeah, and, and so I can, uh, let me be clear, I don't have a huge amount of interaction with the medical community per se. I have some. Um, we, uh, so what I'm hearing, though, from the medical community is uh, not a whole lot different from sort of what we're hearing from the public. And, you know, it's important to understand that doctors are just people and they hear what they hear and think what they think as well. Um, so I think, I think what I hear from the medical community sometimes is uh, some frustration that they, on the one hand, they feel like there may be some medical benefit here, uh, but it's all very undefined and it's hard to know what to say, if they have patients who come in and say, I'm using this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking this CBD oil or I'm smoking because this helps me with my nausea or, you know, they're, I think they oftentimes don't know uh, what to say about that from a medical research standpoint. Uh, and, and, and let me just say that the medical research um, is, uh, thinner than it needs to be. We need a um, we need uh, we need good clinical trials with different cannabinoid compounds from the marijuana plant. Um, you know, preferably placebo, double-blind controlled studies that really tell us, is this helping, is it hurting, is it benign, is it doing nothing at all? And that kind of research um, is only just now starting to happen, and it's difficult even to do that kind of research because, um, because of government restrictions on research and research funding, which is a real frustration in the medical research community. Um, but the, uh, and, and that's what I hear from that community. But the, so I think the doctors are operating sort of uh, out of the best information that they, that they think they have, you know, they, based on what they know, or what they think about it. Um, they have been, um, you know, advising patients. But I think their wish, what I hear is, their wish is they wish they had clearer, better information than they're getting on the subject. You mentioned uh, some of the barriers to this research. Is yeah. uh, my understanding, and limited as it is, is that part of the barrier is that marijuana is still classified as a Schedule One drug. Correct. Uh, maybe maybe talk a little bit barrier. about what that means. What what does it mean to be a Schedule One drug? Well, under the federal guideline, if a uh, if a substance is a Schedule One drug, then they consider it a drug with high abuse potential and uh, little to no medical benefit. Uh, so that's that's sort of the definition. So, for instance, cocaine is a Schedule Two drug, which means it has a high abuse potential, but we do recognize some medical 
use for it. Uh, it's used, uh, for instance, in, in veterinary um, medicine. It, it can numb tissue. Uh, if you sprinkle cocaine on tissue, it can numb it uh, and so forth. So there is some recognized medical use, actually, for cocaine. Uh, so that makes it a Schedule II as opposed to a Schedule One. So there's sort of a, an ongoing petitioning of the DEA, who are the ones who determine that scheduling. Um, there's sort of an ongoing petitioning of the DEA to reschedule marijuana. And um, my thinking on that is that I wish um, I wish they would begin um, asking for a rescheduling of the various compounds and and you know, rescheduling of the compounds, uh, perhaps in concert with each other, um, so that we so that we really can do better medical exploration than we're doing now. But right now, because it's a Schedule One drug, that means that funding is limited. Uh, it's hard to get funding to do the research, and if you want to get and and if you're going to do that research, you have to get your marijuana from the federal government. Um, and that in, that involves, uh, I've heard people in that community attempting to do that research say this requires massive amounts of paperwork and, you know, protocols that you have to have in your lab and all kinds of things that are pretty, pretty burdensome. Uh, if, if instead it were rescheduled to, you know, something um, uh, put in a different place on the drug schedule. Just for context, Alan, what are some other Schedule One drugs? Oh, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, heroin, I think, uh, in the U.S., heroin is is considered a Schedule One drug. Okay, so that um, we get some sense of yeah. of how uh, marijuana is viewed in relation to heroin, and and that, as you mentioned, uh, cocaine, which is a Schedule Two drug. That you know, right. it, it, if I'm correct here that I think there was uh, some thought that uh, earlier in this year in 2017 that there might have been some movement by the DEA but that did not happen is that is that correct that's that's my understanding I think it was in uh, it, it, I mean uh, it, yes there was uh, there was a consideration the DEA did uh, take up you know the issue of potentially rescheduling marijuana. And in the end, uh, and I forget whether that that ruling came. I think that ruling came uh, maybe in early summer, but I could be wrong about that. Um, that they would not they would not change the schedule on it. So my guess is that that will just continue to happen until the DBA changes its mind. Um, because I, as I said, there are compounds in marijuana I think really do have. That they, we should have some medical investigations on some of those compounds in marijuana. I, I think there's no question about that. And uh, I wish I wish we could, you know, ease the restraints a little and facilitate that uh, that research. Are you suggesting that that some of these compounds could be classified individually? Yes. Um, and I wish they would be because, um, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, here's the question, is marijuana, is marijuana a medicine? Uh, well, marijuana is a medicine in the same way that you might, you know, use white willow bark for a headache. 
you know, you might make a tea or chew some white willow bark in order to treat a headache because it has an aspirin-like compound in it. Well, you know, we purified uh, that compound, and now if I have a headache, I don't have to chew on willow bark. I can take an aspirin. Um, and what I wish, uh, what I wish we would do, and what I think we could do, is begin really investigating the individual compounds and those in combination with each other for their potential medical properties. And and we could we could perhaps schedule them. So you know perhaps CBD um, goes to a higher, less restrictive drug schedule than THC does. Um, if they are you know if they are being done. Uh, if they're being taken independently of one another. Uh, and there are plants out there that have very high CBD levels uh, and very low THC levels. Uh, I don't know if you recall, uh, some time back, uh, Sanjay Gupta did a show about uh, marijuana, and he highlighted a, a young girl in Colorado who had Trevay syndrome, and she got CBD oil. Um, unfortunately, he just kept referring to marijuana. And I, people didn't take from that that, you know, this, I don't know, three-year-old child wasn't smoking a joint. Her parents were using an extract, uh, a pure CBD oil, essentially pure CBD oil, and putting that in drops uh, in her, uh, I think in her food or under her tongue, I'm not sure which. Uh, and she had, you know, rather dramatic improvements in her seizure disorder. Um, so I think we could look at rescheduling those independently of one another. Uh, and my my whole problem, my whole problem with the um, the referendums and the legislative processes that we're doing on medical marijuana is that it's short circuiting. Our, our medical, our drug approval process. We have an established drug approval process in this country. And it's sort of out of a sense of frustration with the government not allowing the legitimate research to be done and a push from advocates who saying, you know, this plant really helps me, that we've pushed the public's opinion on this and we've pushed legislative opinion on this to say, let's just make it available apart from our whole drug approval process. And uh, so now we have this drug out there in, in medical marijuana states um, that is available generally to anybody who wants to go get it if they can persuade a doctor that they have some need, uh, some condition that marijuana might help. Uh, and too often that's being done without any medical monitoring, although in some of the states now they've started requiring more medical monitoring of that. but. But in doing that, here's what we have not identified. We have not really identified who shouldn't be getting this medication. People with a family history of psychosis disorders probably should not be taking marijuana in at least THC in any form. CBD is a different issue. Um, you know, we, we have people who should not be getting medical marijuana, quote unquote. And... Um, uh, we haven't really, we don't know how it interacts with other drugs that people are taking. We, um, most of what we know about marijuana's effects on the human body come from its recreational use in younger, healthier 
uh, adults. And we don't know what happens with that when we start going to other age groups uh, and people who are already have their health compromised with other health conditions. So we've just sort of bypassed this whole system that we have for investigating drugs. We're just now sort of putting it out there for the public to use. And I think from a public health perspective, that concerns me. This is going to be fascinating to follow over the next 5, 10, 20 years, don't you think? Oh, it absolutely is. I think, I think we are on the threshold of some, some really decent new medicines, cannabidiol. And I, and I always have to do this a little with, with some caution. Cannabidiol looks pretty darn um, wonderful. <laughs> you know, to, uh, however, having said that, um, it, it seems to have all these beneficial health benefits without getting you high, without the addictive potential. I say all of that, and at the same time, um, over and over again in our nation's history, we have had drugs introduced that were supposed to be the new next wonder drug. And they did do what they were supposed to do, but as more and more people use them in the public, they turned out to have problems that we didn't identify earlier on. So, but I do think you're right. It's going to be fascinating. And I think uh, as we look into these other co compounds that are in there, um, cannabigerol and uh, some others that are out there, that we are going to, uh, I think we're, we're on the threshold of a whole new class of medications, cannabinoid medications. Uh, and I, so I, I wish we could just get on with our clinical investigations of that so that we know what does and doesn't work and for whom it does and does not work. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. You have your work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs> let's, we all do. Let, let, let's, uh, I just want to shift gears just a little bit here. Okay. What have we learned from places like Colorado? in Oregon and other places where where there is legal recreational marijuana or and has been for now a period of time what what have we learned yeah both good and bad yeah um i think uh Almost, I should have anticipated that question, and I really, I wish I had looked at this some more. So I'm, I'm now going to talk off the top of my head just a little bit. I think one of the things that we've learned, you know, one of the concerns that people have had is that it will, um, uh, it will increase adolescent use. And I'm not sure if we've really seen that happen. But here's what we have seen. So that's maybe the good thing. We haven't seen a huge increase in the numbers of people who are using it. But here's the, here's the flip side that you rarely hear about. Among those who are using it, they're using it more and more often. And that's not good when we're talking about THC. Um, so um, I think there are, I think there's increased risk in the using population. Uh, the using population grew for a while for more longer term effects even though it's been a few years since we had the legalization there i'm not sure that we have enough history yet um, to know 
you know, what the long-term benefits are. My understanding is, and boy, I'm really talking off the top of my head here now, my understanding is that there has been an uptick in uh, people uh, meeting criteria for cannabis dependence or, or cannabis use disorder. Uh, at least in Colorado, I have not seen data on Washington uh, on that. Uh, and of course, we have other states who are coming on with uh, uh, with legal use. Alaska is already there. Uh, I think Maine's begins maybe at the first of this coming year. Uh, you know, uh, recreational use will be permitted there, uh, and so forth. So, I think there. Uh, I think we're. I think we're still sort of early in that. Uh, and I, I wish I had really looked at um, uh, some data on that, but I confess I'm under-informed on that. <laughs> One of the uh, things that I've seen is, uh, echoes what you've seen, and that, and that is that the, 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 uh, there may not be a significant increase of marijuana use by adolescents in these states. But um, of concern is the fact that the perception of risk has gone down. Correct. And, and so among those who are using it, the, uh, the use, the, the quantity of use and the quantity and frequency of use seems to have increased. And quantity and frequency uh, with THC is predictive of uh, future cannabis use disorder. So that is, that is concerning. It's going to be interesting to watch that as well here in, here in, uh, my home state of Michigan, there are efforts to to push for legal recreational marijuana. I, I don't, you know, the train has sort of left the station on on this, and um, I think we are going to see more places move forward with it. We've seen national studies that uh, that tell us that over over fifty percent of the population is in favor of it. Uh, right. So you know the the momentum going forward you know there's been there's been uh, and again I, I tend to say this and and I don't know if this is really true but in my lifetime uh, now as a, as a middle-aged man there have been really some of of these issues pop up from time to time and they seem to move with 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 great speed I mean if we looked at at, uh, yes. that, at, at this issue 10 years ago, there wasn't the same kind of momentum. And then just recently, there's been this great momentum. I think we, I, I saw the same thing. Uh, we saw the same thing maybe several years ago with marriage equality, where it just picked right. up momentum very quickly. And, and whether you are for or against these things, the speed at which the conversation changes is, is remarkable to me. Uh, and that's... That, that's part yeah, of my interest in in marijuana, not only from from just professional interest in in this, but also just looking at it from a thirty five thousand feet perspective and saying, "Wow, look how fast this conversation is changing." It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. And and um, uh, you know, let the uh, let me give a little expression to my cynical side for just a moment. Marijuana is becoming a billion-dollar industry, and there are a multi-billion-dollar industry in all likelihood, and there are moneyed interests out there who have a vested interest in changing public perception. So that's part of what's driving it. And also I think a part of what's driving it is that uh, you, you do have people who say, look, you know, I have this, I have this medical condition, and... Uh, 
uh, you know, when I use marijuana, um, you know, when I do this or that, uh, then I feel, I feel better, I function better, I do better in my life. And that's hard to argue with. I think the American public tend to be sort of fair-minded and compassionate, especially when it comes to people who are ill. And so, you know, we, we have sort of said as, as, a, as a culture now, well, you know, we, 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 need, to, we need to help these people. And uh, I think, uh, I certainly agree with that. We do need to help these people. I just wish we would go about it in a more <laughs> research-based way <laughs> and allow for compassionate use, uh, you know, sort of uh, on the fly as we are now. But also let's, let's dig in and really find out, you know, is this as good a medicine as we have? Are there other things that do as well or even better? Um, and at the same time, are there, uh, or are there real benefits here? And can we get this to people in a more measured, more purified, more um, uh, medically monitored form that reduces the risks and increases the benefits? Which, um, you know, I think would be what everyone wants. The problem is, as you mentioned, the perception of risk has fallen. And so people uh, are just sort of full steam ahead on, uh, let's get the benefits uh, both pharmacological and uh, economic <laughs> benefits um, without, I think, an awareness uh, of the risks that are there. Well, that's a great summary, Alan. I, I, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface here, but if people uh, who listen to this want to learn more, where would you uh, direct them? Oh, um, boy, that's a... You know that's a that's a great question, and I get it's a question that I get fairly often, and I honestly don't know what to say to people uh, about that. There, um, you know, right now the information that is out there tends to be sort of, you know, in in schools of this is great and this uh, or this is terrible, and getting balanced information is really tough. Um, so what I would what I would suggest is that, you know, when you read media reports about marijuana, you, we should be asking which compound are they talking about? Or are they talking about just the plant, you know, the whole plant? Um, and then the other question, you know, that we should keep in mind is, well, what are the risks associated with that? But where to go to get sort of a summary or, you know, a deeper look at what we're saying here? That's um, that's hard, actually. <laughs> I don't know of anywhere, um, and unless you're just willing to dig into the research literature yourself, because that's that's where it is now. If people were uh, had questions for you, is there is there a way that they can reach you with with questions? Uh, yeah, yeah, they can they can email me uh, at. Um, uh, it's so it's Alan A L L A N dot Barger B A R G E R at Prime for Life dot org T R I M E F O R L I F E all spelled out Prime for Life dot org. This has been fascinating for me. I I I, I want to. We've kept you uh, quite a long time. I want to thank you for your time. You've given us just a great deal of information, and I think uh, you've gone a long way toward educating people about 
what the term medical marijuana really means. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm very happy about that. And I want to thank you again for your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to say it. Uh, I think it's a really important issue, and I, I, I appreciate um, hopefully adding some light <laughs> to the. Uh, I've always said my goal is to turn down the heat and turn up the light in our discussions on this. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much. Yeah, Alan, I, I look forward to seeing you down the road. Thanks, you too, Jim. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADE Spotlight Podcast. If you would like to be a guest on one of our podcasts or if you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to cover, please feel free to drop us a line. We'd love to hear your suggestions. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to check out ADE Solutions, a new website from ADE. There you will find a variety of quizzes and assessments covering a whole range of behavioral health related topics, including substance use, gambling, mental health disorders, eating disorders, and the like. If you have concerns about yourself or a loved one in these areas, uh, please uh, access the website and check out the assessments. Or if you simply want to expand your knowledge on these topics, on the education tab on that website, we have a variety of quizzes uh, as well as other podcasts similar to the one that you just listened to. You can find that at www.ade.solutions, or you can link to it from our corporate website, www.adeincorp.com.